Hi, my name is Jeremy Wagstaff and this is the Loose Wire podcast. This week I'm talking about walled gardens, asking the question, were we ever really free of them? It's hard not to read some of the documents released by the House Judiciary Committee into big tech with some rising bile. What is clear, among other things, is that the internet as a commercial entity has spent more of its life dominated by companies determined on building walled gardens than it has as a genuinely free space. First, a bit of history. The internet as a commercial environment only came into being through services like AOL and CompuServe in the 1980s, which allowed users to dial in to a quasi-internet service via modem. If you own a computer, here's how to get the most out of it without buying lots of expensive software. Get ready to write down a phone number and watch this. CompuServe was launched in 1977, although it wasn't until the mid to late 1980s that it became a broader service. By 1989, it had half a million subscribers in the US and had services in a dozen countries. I signed up for it in Hong Kong in 1991, by which time it had 620,000 subscribers and annual revenues above $200 million. CompuServe was a walled garden, curating the content you could view and extracting a heavy price. It did have access to the internet, but it was limited. I could send and receive emails from my CompuServe account to those with real internet addresses and vice versa, but that was pretty much it. By the mid-1990s, it was facing competition from ISPs who offered a suite of apps to give you access to the web itself and a dial-in number, and AOL. By 1997, it had been bought out by AOL, although it still had a user base of more than 2 million. Indeed, by 1995, there was really no point in having a CompuServe account. Just sign up with a local ISP and you had the web to yourself. Suddenly, we were away from the walled gardens and we were free to wander the web. There was only one catch. It wasn't easy to find stuff, something CompuServe excelled in, until search engines came along. I don't know about you, but I still think of that decade from about 1998 through to 2008 as the halcyon days of user choice when it came to search engines, at least. We had AltaVista, Yahoo, Ask Jeeves, InfoSeek, Lycos, Inkatomi's Hotbot, All the Web, and of course Google. But look more closely, as I did with data I cobbled together from various sources, and you'll find that Google had stolen the show from about 2003. By the end of the decade, it was preeminent, with a market share of more than 90%. Yes, Google was a great search engine, and still is. But as we now know, this loss of choice carried with it a cost. Our world became Google's world, and Google's world became ours. It was a walled garden, much like CompuServe's. Only this time it was being directed to Google's services or allowing yourself to be watched by Google's cookies, essentially, indirectly, paying Google a tax for their dominance. But they weren't the only walled gardeners in town. Once again, we think of the arrival of the iPhone, iPad and App Store as this liberation from the yoke of Microsoft, boring software and hardware, and a lack of anything interesting to do with your phone. And all that is true. But what we tend to forget is that Steve Jobs had no interest in delivering an experience beyond the walls of his own garden. It's quite explicit in the documents, and it's a sober reminder to me that Apple, from the start of its ecosystem, had no interest in helping the user unless it could cream off the experience. 
One email from November 2010 has him telling Amazon to use our payment mechanism or bow out. And a few months later, he wrote that iBooks, Apple's rather underpowered bookstore, is going to be the only bookstore on iOS devices. We need to hold our heads high, he wrote. One can read books bought elsewhere, just not from iOS without paying us. Which, he acknowledged, is prohibitive for many things. There's nothing unclear about this. There's no weasel words about protecting the user or ensuring their experience is as good as possible. It's old-fashioned rent-seeking and building walls. And of course, it's obvious to most of us. I suppose what is surprising to me is how far back it went, almost to the start. And of course, Facebook and Amazon are a little different. All four appear insatiable, according to the documents, about using their market dominance not to make sure their customers benefit, but the opposite. To make sure the rent all other players pay them is maximised, and where competition arises, to snuff it out quickly. There's nothing in the documents that I've read so far to suggest that any of these companies had any regard for their users in any of the decisions being made and the negotiations being conducted. Of course, there's no need for them to be doing so. There's no oversight committee or PR angle that needs to be pumped. But when the lights are out and they think no one is listening, it's all about building those walls ever higher. So, it turns out, as a historian, that the internet has been under the influence or control of walled gardens longer than it's been free. Arguably, the only time when we had a significant degree of freedom was from about 1995 to 2002. Certainly by the end of the 2000s, we were doomed. I find it intriguing to note that this period was maybe when the web was its most creative, coming out with many of the tools and the principles that these technopolis, my term, remember where you heard it first, took as their own. But I'll save that for another time. This is the Loose Wire podcast and I'm Jeremy Wagstaff. Thanks for downloading and listening. You can find the blog and written versions of these with charts and stuff at loosewireblog.com. <laughs>